Gunny Men are a cult unlike any other, operating in the black market shadows between business and religion. They sell murder for money. Except for one night a year, when they do it just for fun. But this time, their sadistic human hunt has some uninvited guests. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. Maybe you've heard of the floating hunts before. Maybe not. Probably not. No offense to you, the listener. But you've got to be one of the ultra-elite, fabulously wealthy one-percenters in order to participate in one of the most whispered-about events of the last century. The floating hunts are human hunts. Started in 1920 by a famous big-game hunter, adventurer, and occultist named Perry Ambrose. That same year, Ambrose started an organization to help him run the hunts. This was no backyard operation. It was global. As the name suggests, the floating hunts always moved, never in the same spot twice. Not in the early days, anyway. These men came from different cultures, countries, spoke different languages, had different colors of eye and hair and skin, but they were always men. Perry Ambrose, in some ways, was rather progressive for his time, but not when it came to the fairer sex. After the first few floating hunts, the waiting list was years long. Prices skyrocketed, but it didn't matter. No matter how much Ambrose raised the entry fee, the wait times only got longer. The floating hunts were, and I cannot stress this enough, even though it may not land with your modern sensibilities, but the floating hunts were considered an honorable way a safe way to kill another human being and face no repercussions for it. I say honorable because the prey in these hunts, the game, they were never duped. They were never kidnapped, never lured, most certainly never forced into service. Ambrose and his people offered a very handsome paycheck to take part in the floating hunts. And no matter what happened, win, lose, or draw, they paid. If you survived, 
then you walked away with your money. If you died, then your money went to whoever you had specified without fail. And this gave a sense of solace to any hunters who might have felt a a shadow of remorse. This was a situation that people entered into of their own free will and volition. They entered knowing that their lives were most likely going to be forfeit. So it made it a lot harder to feel guilty about murdering someone under those particular set of circumstances. The organization that ran the hunts started to wear burlap sacks, gunny sacks, over their faces to hide their public identities. And thus they came to be called the Gunny Men. As the years rolled on, Perry Ambrose became less and less interested in the business aspect of the floating hunts and more obsessed with his bizarre occultism. His loyal gunny men continued the hunts under the auspicious oversight of a man named Lepton Sinclair. And they actually expanded the games and started making a truly insane amount of money. But they were still owned by Perry Ambrose, even though he was very hands-off at this point. In 1942, Ambrose instituted a new annual event that he called the Gunny Sack Races. And I actually don't have the words adequate to convey the inhumanity the barbarity, the gleeful sadism of the gunny sack races. Ambrose demanded the presence and participation of all his loyal gunny men in a hunt without honor. To prove their fealty, the gunny men had to participate in a race to hunt helpless and unarmed women and children and sick and elderly people. And the race was to see who could slaughter the most of them. At this point, the gunny men were no longer an evil business. They were an evil, malignant, and dangerous blood cult. When Ambrose passed away in 1963, the floating hunts fell into the possession of his only true heir, daughter Lila Ambrose. She was more than happy to keep collecting the family percentage from the floating hunts, but she insisted that the gunny sack races continue. At this point, the gunny men had been around for a long time. There were many still loyal to the Ambrose family and the dark faith that had been forced upon them, but there were a lot of others, a growing number, who just wanted to make money. And yes, they made that money by trading on human death, but they weren't blood cultists. They were just bad people. In 1975, Lila Ambrose presented the High Council of the Gunny Men with an offer. If they broke Ira Dunwich out of prison and staged his death for her, she would renounce all claim to the floating hunts. The gunny men 
did as asked. And at that point, they stepped away from all the culty shit. The gunny sack races stopped. But the floating hunts, they continued. If you had the money, the contacts, if you had the right phone number to call and the right wire transfer account, then you, yes, you could murder someone just to see what it felt like. The floating hunts were and are very real. The gunny men still exist to this day. And while some of them are still just in it for the money, there are others, loyalists to the old ways, yearn for something more, something darker. And so in 2016, the gunny sack races return. Captain Sinclair III was a legacy gunnyman, one of the scant few the organization could still claim, and one of only a mere handful of third-generation members. His bloodline and his wealth got him a seat on the High Council, but his loyalty, and more importantly his ability to generate more wealth, is what kept him there. Lepton loved making money, and so most days he loved his job. Days like today, these were the ones that he dreaded. Like his father and his grandfather, Lepton was a man with a mind for numbers. Also like them, he possessed the requisite moral flexibility to focus on the bottom line and ignore all the lives being lost. There were others in the Gunny Men who had a different way of thinking. They were throwbacks, old school guys, traditionalists. And they wanted to go back to the way Perry Ambrose used to do things. This didn't sit right with Lepton. He didn't mind profiting on murder, but he didn't want to commit murder himself. To him... That the Loyalists were bringing back the gunny sack races was something he very much was dreading. Thankfully, there was still a ghost of a chance that the races could be called off, even though the blood sacrifices had already been gathered, and all the most loyal men were there to spill that innocent blood. 
But before the ritual began, the High Council was holding a meeting. An old friend of the organization had respectfully asked for a chance to talk them out of restarting the tradition of the gunny sack races. Lila Ambrose, of all people. Even though she held no official power over the group, not since 1975 anyway, the Ambrose name still carried a lot of sway. And the fact that Lila, one of the biggest proponents of the races who had ever lived, wanted to stop them from happening, it had everyone more than a little curious. What was this about, really? What was her angle? No matter how the world at large might have viewed Lila Ambrose, the men of this organization knew what she really was. And she most certainly was not the type of woman to give a single solitary fuck about the murder of a bunch of children. Instead, she said it had to do with business. She had an offer to present. Lepton's driver parked in the gravel out in front of the modest two-story building they were using to host this meeting. It sat in full view, the shipping container placed near the edge of the woods. The shipping container that was filled with children. Lepton looked away. It was, it was just best not to think about that. His armed bodyguards walked him past the two dozen hooded gunny men that were milling around outside the main entrance because Lepton was the very last to arrive. He left his bodyguards downstairs with the others and entered the meeting room. He found it rambunctious, filled with excited men. The liquor flowed, cigars smoldered. Lepton tried to call them all to order, but it was tough. There were over 20 of them, some in total, representing a goodly number of the legacy members and several chapter leaders from different parts of the organization around the world. They had truly called together the best of them for this high council meeting and the wild affair that was to follow. Lepton seemed to be the only one who was freaking out, the only one not just giddy with anticipation about the gunny sack races. Well, there was one other, him and a young woman who was waiting patiently in the corner. They all knew who she was, why she was there, and who she was there for. And so in true gunny fashion... They all instinctively turned it up a little bit. More drinks, more smokes, more backslapping, more speculation on whose men would bag the most bodies on this wonderful night. Let her wait. Let her stew on it. So that she knew who ran this room. She was, after all, a woman. And not just that, but she was representing another woman. And while... Some gunny traditions were taken more as gospel than others. Disregard and contempt for the weaker sex was not one of them. Finally, 
They were just eager to be done with this whole thing, get past the meeting, and move on to the fun. So they all found a seat and let Lepton introduce their guest. This is Sadie Jane, he said, giving her the floor near the steel door at the back of the room. As you all know, she's here to deliver a business proposal from Lila Ambrose. A brief flutter of harumphs passed through the room. Sadie waited for quiet before she started. Gentlemen, I'll be brief. Miss Ambrose would like to extend her deepest thanks for giving me this moment of your valuable time. Right now, you are being presented with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This message is intended for each and every one of you as individuals, not just as council members. There's a lot of money to be made, and all you have to do to make that money is not hold the gunny sack races. As you know, Miss Ambrose has come to see the error of her past ways. And one thing in particular that she feels she needs to atone for was this ritual that you are about to undertake tonight. Yes, Miss Ambrose participated in many races over the years. And if her stories are to be believed, she won more than she lost. But she's left all that behind her. As did you. Miss Ambrose wanted me to point that out. 1975, when you parted ways, remember? Your organization decided to focus entirely on business. If I'm not mistaken, you even confirmed this in 1986. You had a meeting. A man named Frank Rourke, representing a uh, paramilitary religious sect called the Order. And so you can see how it's quite disconcerting to Miss Ambrose that your organization seems to be reverting back to the old primitive ways. At the word primitive, the rampant disrespect in the tone of this young woman set off the gentleman from Brazil. He jumped to his feet and started shouting her down in Portuguese. Lepton calmed him down, settled everybody down, and approached Sadie. Young lady... I feel this is all becoming quite disrespectful. If you have real business, state it now or leave. Fair enough, Sadie said. Let's talk money. Gentlemen, Miss Ambrose has tens of millions of dollars liquid at this moment she is willing to sink into your organization, more than enough to expand the floating hunts even further and in bold new ways. Stand with her. Stand with us. You will be rewarded. Or else... Lepton was approaching her, intending to push her out the door and be done with it. But the pure gall of her unstated threat rattled him. It rattled everybody, whether she knew it or not. Threatening men such as these on a night such as this would very easily result in bad things happening to her repeatedly. 
Lepton narrowed his eyes and said, Or else what? Gentlemen, we know that most of you have been meeting with Frank Rourke recently. We know that tonight is his doing. Miss Ambrose sent me here to tell you in no uncertain terms that the priest with red hands is done. We are taking him out. So you stand with us or you're done too. She took a small blinking device out of her pocket, a trigger detonator. Tonight, we settle old accounts. Lepton grabbed her wrist and pulled her in close. I'm in. She grabbed his lapel and pulled him after her into the safe room, slammed that big steel door. Good choice, Lepton. Then she squeezed the trigger and set off the charges under the table in the meeting room. In the back corner of the shipping container lay a half dozen figures wrapped in dark shrouds and sheets. They hadn't lived long enough to see the horrors of the gunny sack races unfold and had just been wrapped up and pushed out of the way until the others could join them. All except for one. One of them, much larger than the others, sat up, pulled the fitted sheet away from himself, and got to his feet. Manny Cortez was ready for the job. He was ready to work. What he was not ready for was how to deal with what was staring back at him. Hearing them was one thing. Seeing them, very much another. There were, best guesstimate, 50 or 60 little beady sets of eyes locked on him, all of them scared halfway to death. Not of Manny, but of what they knew waited outside that container. But it was only half, and it should have been a full measure of fear, because Manny had not been sent here to save them. His work tonight had nothing at all to do with the well-being of these children, who were, to his bosses, just as expendable as they were to the gunny men. Manny had some other ideas. He calmed them down, he hushed them, and then he got down to one knee so that he wouldn't be towering above them. Manny never had any kids, he never wanted any, and he used to say that he didn't like kids. But now, when he was here, looking at all these dirty, innocent, terrified faces, he realized that he liked kids a lot more than some people. He liked them enough to start 
spinning them a big lie without even realizing he was doing it at first. He started with a little laugh and then a shake of his head like, no, no, no. This confused the kids right away. And one of them, a dark-skinned young girl, tugged on his pant leg. What's funny, mister? Oh, you guys wouldn't get it. Get what? Well, it's a joke. A grown-up joke. A, a prank. Do you know what a prank is? He looked around the room. He saw a few nodding heads. But if I tell you guys about the prank, you're just going to ruin it. Kids always ruin stuff. No, no, the girl said. Some of the other kids backed her up. No, we won't say anything. Well, okay. You promise to keep a secret? And no matter what, you cannot laugh. You got me? And they were all nodding now. The energy of the room was changing around him. I'm for real. This is funny. But if you laugh, it's going to ruin the whole prank, okay? Okay? Okay. You know this is supposed to be a prank on you guys, yeah? Those dicks out there in the hoods? We call them jabronis. Do you have that word here on your island? Well, these jabronis think it's funny to scare kids. And right now, out there, they're all finding hiding spots. Pretty soon they're going to open the door, they're going to let you out, and then they're all going to start jumping out and scaring you. And I mean... They want to scare the shit out of you for realsies. I actually heard that some of those guys have a bet going. They call it a race to see who can scare the most kids. Whoever can scare the shit out of the most of you guys. And I mean scare you till you cry and you pee and you poop your pants. Whoever does that to the most kids wins. Isn't that fucked up? The kids all nodded silently, agreeing that yes, yes, it was very fucked up. But it was a far sight less fucked up than the fate they had all envisioned for themselves. And so it came as somewhat of a relief that it was all just a prank. But my buddies and I, see, we found out about it. We decided we were going to flip it on them and scare them with an even worse prank before they could scare you. Check out these bad boys. First he pulled out his sidearm, then he pulled out his other sidearm. A pair of desert eagles, so shiny black, they glowed in the gloom. They look totally real, don't they? Everyone nodded. They did look incredibly real for fake guns. So check it out. When they think it's time to scare you guys, you're all going to stay in here, and I'm going to go out, and I'll pretend to shoot them with my fake guns. Do you think they're going to be scared? He saw some smiles now. He saw a few mouths opening to answer his rhetorical question. No, 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 shh, quiet, quiet. We're all in this together. There's no backing out. Don't mess up. Prank. The kids had all shifted from half scared to death to half pissing their pants in anticipation of the tables being so righteously turned. 
Manny crept to the front of the container, tested the door, and he put his ear against it. There was furtive talking outside, shuffling footsteps, the excited pre-game chatter from rookie participants and breathless anticipation from the veterans. Manny quickly turned to see all the kids were crowding around him, eager to see what happened next, and he had to back them up, silently gesturing to get them back, sit down, lay down. You've got to be so quiet. And then the door was rattling, groaning. On your mark, the handle spun and disengaged. Get set. And with a flat kathunk, the door popped open. There was a thin sliver of moonlight in a single shadow. Manny shot the shadow in the center of the hood, kicked him out of the way, and slammed the container door behind him. Inside, the kids looked around at one another. Their eyes were so wide. The gunshot had seemed so real. Those jabronis out there were going to be terrified. There was a roar, like the world had caught on fire. And then they heard Manny whoop and shout and shoot his guns. Let's see who pees their pants now the little girl said. A wave of laughter overtook the children. Even as outside, the bullets started to pop like strings of firecrackers. God damn it, Manny, Oregon Cray said, mostly to himself. You loud motherfucker. Manny had this problem, he always had this problem, and everyone knew it, and yet, for some reason... Tonight's plan did not account for it. Manny Cortez seemed to be incapable of speaking softly. When he spoke normally, it was at a half shout, and when he whispered, that tended to be the same volume as regular people talking. Cray was perched in a tree, his eye affixed to the end of a sniper scope. And from a hundred yards away, he could still hear Manny talking to those damn kids. He couldn't make out the words, but he could hear the cadence. Manny was telling one of his stories. Not only could Cray hear him, but the gunny men could hear him too. There were sixteen hooded men clustered near the end of the shipping container. Many more along the periphery, more at the base of the house. Based on the rough head count Cray had done, there were at least 60 men on the premises, although realistically that number was probably closer to 80. Didn't matter much. He had the bullets. They'd done the legwork. They'd prepared, set the charges. Now all they had to do was stick to the plan, unless Manny fucked it up. One of the hoods approached the container, and unlocked the door. Cray watched him calmly through the eyepiece, just to get an up-close view of what was happening. At this range, he was pretty sure he could make the shot without the scope. Cray had spent a few weeks training with the Vespers, and he'd never been a better shot. 
and before that, he'd already been the best shot that he knew of. The door opened slowly. Cray displayed his trademark sniper's patience, and the gunny man's head burst from within, instantly soaking through with blood and brain meat. And then Manny was out, slamming the door, lifting his guns. And just then, the night lit up, crackling orange and yellow. The soft whoop of a contained force blast turned into the shattering of roof and wall as fire cackled and flew into the night sky like escaping witches. All this drama immediately drew the attention of all the gunny men. It was just for a second, but a second was all that they needed for Manny Cortez and Oregon Cray to do what they were best at. And so they went to fucking work. In the background, as they started killing, they could hear the children in the container roaring with laughter. Gunny men stared up in shock as the upper meeting room, the room containing all the highest leaders of their organization, had turned into a ground zero. It was just a moment, just long enough to register what they were seeing. But in that moment, a dozen of their number died as the night exploded in gunfire. From his perch, Cray was squeezing his trigger fast but steady, letting his eye wander towards the next dumbstruck hooded dumb fuck, headshot after headshot, and with these fragmenting slugs that he used, he called them tumbling dice. There was never a need for a double tap. Manny was unloading with both desert eagles, two barrels, two bullets, two targets at a time. He might not have been able to write ambidextrously or even spell the word ambidextrously, but he surely could shoot ambidextrously and he was taking down every hood around him. The chaos erupted. It enfolded. Some cultists turned to fight. Others turned to run. Some turned on each other. The hardline guards watching the outside of the meeting house were trying to get inside and check on their deceased masters. Cray slung the rifle over his shoulder and dropped to the ground. He took the trigger from his pocket and mashed it, detonating the shaped charges that they had hidden just inside the first floor. The explosives were packed into the corners on either side of the big glass panel doors, so when they triggered, the wall of force 
shattered the thick glass panes and turned them into a hailstorm of glittering shards. Gunny men shed burlap and dermis like molting snakes, and the driveway around the building quickly soaked over with red. The slick chunks of gravel looked like wet grape nuts peeking out through the very worst kind of milk. Upstairs in the safe room, Sadie listened to the carnage unfold, utterly unfazed by any of it. She calmly lit up a cigarette and then offered one to Lepton, who declined. His hand was shaking. I didn't think you... I didn't think you could... His voice was shaking, too. They're all dead! She nodded with no sadness, and then pressed her hand flat against the safety door. It was a bit warm, but not hot. Any fire that the explosion would have generated should have burned itself out within a few seconds. Lepton, your organization is taking some heavy losses today. It's time to rebuild and restructure. You're working with us now, not the priest. Now I know that you have people all over the world. I also know this isn't a snake that we can just cut the head off of. But I want you to know we don't want to do that. Miss Ambrose considers the floating hunts to be a part of her family legacy, and she wants them to continue. That's why you and I are talking. You are going to spread the word that business continues as before. But certain lines, they don't get crossed. We have people all around the world, too, Lepton. This here, tonight, is a show of force. It can get a hell of a lot uglier. But it does not have to. She ground her smoke under her heel and extended a gloved hand. What say? Partners? Lepton shook it. Manny had cut left, circling around the side of the shipping container, not to use it for cover, but to make sure no one started shooting into it. He saw a lot of robes and hoods hitting the ground. Men were showing their true colors and trying to escape. Unfortunately for them, Miss Ambrose had been pretty clear about specific things. For the first time in their miserable lives, these child killers were going to be good for something. They were going to serve as a warning for anyone else who tried to pull this shit. Some people might think it's cowardly to shoot a man in the back when he's running away. But not Manny. Not with these so-called men. He saw movement to his right but he could tell by the smoothness of the running and shooting that it could only be Cray. Cray had put on one of the blood-soaked burlap hoods, ran with the gun stock braced against his shoulder, the barrel belching little flashes of white as he took life after life. Knowing his flank was covered, Manny kept circling hard left, pulling the trigger on every single thing that moved. He left a trail of empty clips in his wake until 
Nothing else on the field of play was left alive. The two men moved over to the blood-soaked jumble of bodies outside the first floor, where they tapped fists. A little slower than practice, Manny said. Cray took off his hood and shrugged. Yeah, well, you were a little fucking louder than practice. Upstairs, Sadie left the safe room and took inventory of all the corpses in the meeting room. Lepton followed her, still half-sleepwalking. Maybe it was the shock from his comrades dying. Maybe he was lightly concussed from the explosion. But he registered no emotion when Sadie took out a canvas bag and a heavy knife. I'm sorry about this, Lepton. I do not enjoy it, she said. But Miss Ambrose, she insists on the heads. Sadie went around the room and removed the skulls of every council member. Fortunately, there weren't too many heads left, and those few were relatively easy to pull away from the rest of the body. When she had everything she needed, she slung the canvas bag over her shoulder and headed downstairs. Lepton followed at a shuffling distance. Manny and Cray were waiting at the front door, where Cray took the sack of heads from her. She said to Lepton, You know the rules. We'll be watching. Manny caught her eye and led her gaze over to the shipping container. He didn't say a word, but she heard those kids chattering inside, and so he didn't have to. Right. Lepton, it's important to Miss Ambrose that those kids in there, they go back where they came from. You do that would send her the message that you honor our new relationship. Does that sound like something you can do? Lepton nodded. Great. Enjoy your promotion, Lepton. But mind your P's and Q's or we will come back. Just before daybreak, the small, unmarked charter plane quietly lifted off from a private airstrip. Cray was dead asleep before the first rays had broken the horizon. Sadie had her shoes off, her feet tucked underneath her as she typed out a sit-rep. Her wig had slipped just to one side, but not enough that she noticed. Manny was sipping shivis from a cut glass, just staring out the window at the sun. Manny never had slept much. It was a moment of calm, of quiet, as the warriors shook off the blood of the day. And then Cray started to mumble and moan in his sleep. It was very soft, deep down low in his chest. But it was enough to make his partner sit up and take notice. 
This happened before, Sadie whispered. Manny nodded. Yeah, but not for a long time. Not since, you know. Cray fell silent again. He released a long, slow sigh and then jerked awake in his seat. The gun was in his hand so fast, no one had even seen him pull it. Cray looked around the cabin. His confusion quickly faded, but then rose again. It was her, he said. The long black veil. He put his gun away. She said a name to me. Who's Jack? Thanks for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. It's nice to see the good guys get a win, huh? Although, if the crew is working for Lila Ambrose, can they really be good guys? Find the show on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or email me directly at scaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on whatever platform you happen to listen. Also, you can scooch on over to the show's Patreon page to discover all kinds of killer extras, including bonus stories and post-episode analysis videos. Current patrons of the show include Monica, Eric, Amy, Andy, Catherine, Carl, Matthew, Joseph, Kevin, Buck, and my sweet Aunt Carol. Join them. The episode was produced and edited by Jeff Davidson and featured music by The Tunnel, Dinner, Break the Bands, and, pardon my uh, pronunciation here, but a band called Die Lear im Kern Diner Hofnug. That means the emptiness at the core of your hope, which is pretty much the most German band name I've ever heard. And of course, Chelsea Oxendine with the theme music. We have arrived at the halfway point of the season, and things are starting to come together a little bit. I trust you remember Sadie and the boys from the episode Kid Gloves. You do, don't you? 
If not, go re-listen to it, because this is not the last we will be seeing of them this season. And visit the Patreon to dig deeper into all the recent episodes. You won't get all the answers, but you'll get a lot more information. Imagineville Podcast Network.